All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek. I'm joined by Mike and Rich on this week's Sixers Beat, part of the CLNS Media Network. How are you guys doing? Not too bad, man. The uh, I'm doing better than the Sixers against the Toronto Raptors. That's that for bad sure. game. That was, and all the goodwill of winning eight out of nine went out the window real quickly last night when the Sixers. You know, it was a close game. I think the Sixers had the lead early in the fourth quarter. They played pretty well in the first quarter and a half, but it was not, you know, what they end up losing by, like right around 10, something in that range. 11, I think. Yeah. It was not an 11-point loss. Like, they got beat handily. The Raptors consistently got better looks than the Sixers. The Sixers turned the ball over more. The Sixers had, had troubles rebounding the ball. It was not. It was one of those games where if the Raptors would have made shots, probably at a reasonable clip, I think that's probably a twenty-point loss for the Sixers. So you felt the entire game like, all right, look, if these role players for Trump, really anyone other than Kawhi starts making a shot, the Sixers were screwed. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen Embiid play a worse game than that? Not in a long time. I don't think so. No. I I was just trying to like I was trying to rack my brain and think of of a time and he's he certainly struggled in some games but I mean man I think he was minus twenty three and it honestly it felt worse than that it just uh, it was tough and I mean there you know after the game there are two go to moves from him after a, after a bad performance he will either say I suck or I'm trash that's one. And it might be a trash game relative to just his high standard, unlike last night's game, which was actually trash. Like, that was trash for anybody. And two, which is my favorite, he'll say something ridiculous with, like, a deadpan ex- expression, like uh, Tristan Thompson said the Cavs were on the East and, and he was right or whatever. But, yeah, he, he just looked flat-footed. And, I, you know, it, it was it's, it's kind of concerning because I think we thought it would be, like, uh, a five-out lineup and Al Horford and picking pops that would hurt him. Last night, he got smoked by Valanchunas. And I don't know. I mean, I, 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 we sound like a broken record talking about his minutes all the time. But, yeah, that was that was really bad. Boy, I'll tell you, when yeah. I brought up his minutes the other night um, after the game, and I was not expecting that to be the controversial take that I have, but a lot of fans did not want to put – any of the blame on Embiid's minutes. And look, if you listen to this podcast, I mean, the last podcast we did less than a week ago, we said he's playing too many damn minutes. And so when he comes out and he looks sluggish, like, I'm, yeah, I'm probably going to bring that up. That doesn't absolve him from blame of playing a bad game, though. It's just this is a long-term concern. He's looked sluggish for a couple games now, and you worry whether those minutes are starting to catch up to him and whether or not they need to cut that back a little bit so that we don't run into bigger problems down the line. But all that said, he still played a shitty game the other night too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think the biggest number that stands out as it relates to his energy level is the fact that he only took two free throws. Um, and if I remember correctly, those were, I think that was like an away from the play foul or something like that. It wasn't a shooting foul. Um, and, and this is a guy who like, I don't know how many free throws a game he's averaging, but it's among... The, the league leaders, and to just come out against, you know, a guy like Valanciunas, for example, who Embiid has such a big 
athletic advantage against. And even Serge Ibaka, who's two or three inches shorter and like 20 pounds lighter. And for Embiid to only attempt two free throws, I, I mean, I think that, that says it all right there. Yeah, and that is part of what Derek was saying earlier about how they got their ass kicked in everything except shooting, which is disturbing because, you know, there's going to be nights when the Raptors are going to make shots. But just like last game, the Sixers turned the ball over like crazy. And, I mean, my God, is Kawhi Leonard good? And does he just take advantage of Ben Simmons not being able to shoot more than more than anybody? But the Sixers also got killed on the boards. And they didn't get to the line at all. And the the sole reason that they didn't get to the line, they, they're so good at that usually, is that Embiid just just was a non-factor, and he looked he looked slow. And look, I, I don't want to be a hot take Hoffman over here, but I, enough like I, there will be a time I will say when people are going to get tired of Joel destroying Andre Drummond. And Hassan Whiteside, because that's not the ultimate goal. If he continues to struggle against guys like Aaron Baines and Jonas uh, Valanciunas, and and look, that's it's not me saying stop talking shit and stop having fun. Like, don't do that. But it, it is frustrating. Like the Sixers need Embiid to take his game to even a higher level, to the point where it, when you get uh, like against the top teams, they need they need him to be great. That when you get a performance that he gave last night, they have no chance against a team like the Raptors. All right, so let's yeah. go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I was going to say a quick thing on that is, um, you know, so, something that that is very subtle that I think I think hasn't been noted by a lot of people is a way that Embiid can kind of stay effective in these games is if he's making jump shots and. If you look at the way that that good teams guard him, like the Raptors last night gave him no respect on the three-point line, and the Celtics never guard him out there. And if Embiid could ever get to a point where he's reliably spacing the floor and you can just run a pick-and-pop with Jimmy Butler, that would make things so much easier for the offense. It would be a way for Embiid to kind of stay a a threat in a game where he's not, you know, dominating. Um I think that's kind of a sneaky thing that, that hurt them last night. I think he was 0 for 4. Um, but it yes, would definitely he, be a, a huge help if he could if he could knock that down consistently. Over his last five games, dating back to the Brooklyn game, he's made just one of his last 15 three-point attempts. So that, yeah. that, that aspect of his game has completely left him right now. It, it hurts. And I, I don't think it's a major problem going forward as much as – as poorly as he played last night – he still has been awesome this year, and the the minutes concern is less about uh, his play, you know, moving forward than just just keeping him fresh. But yeah, I mean, when he, I, I, we never see him play even close to that poorly. It was pretty jarring to see that, like in a game when a lot of things went right for them in terms of Toronto couldn't buy an open three, and Jimmy Butler played so well. You see what the Sixers look like when they don't get a good game from him, and it's it's rough. Uh, and look, man, as I said on Twitter before the game, it's only a litmus test and meaningful if you win. <laughs> right, so, right. so if you lose, it's only December. And, I, and it was pretty funny. Brett said that after the game too. So I, I guess everything is good, but I, it is also fair to say uh, 
that the Sixers have a lot of work to do in terms of beating that team because that team is so, really damn good. That team's real good. That team's real, and by, by far the class of the Eastern Conference. But head and shoulders above uh, uh, the Sixers. Head and shoulders above of certainly the way Boston is playing. But I think even Boston playing at a high level, I think I'd take this team. So let's play a quick game of problem, not a problem. And I'll say something, and you'll explain why it is or is not a long-term problem. And by long-term, I mean for the rest of the season. Joel Embiid against strong physical centers. You mentioned you mentioned Aaron Baines. You mentioned Valanciunas. So he, him struggling against these types of centers, is that a problem? Is that not a problem? I would have to do more I would have to look more into that because I don't know I I, I totally hear the Baines and, and Valentunas thing but I would have to kind of look at it over a bigger sample like I know Baines gave him some fits in the playoffs last year and and in on opening night um and Valentunas but I feel like there have been nights where like just to name a, a random name that pops in my head like I remember one night last year and B just dominated Dwight Howard and Dwight Howard is one of the one of the strongest dudes in the NBA. Um, I don't know. I, I I would have to look into that more. I'm inclined to say it's a problem, but uh, I'm not entirely sure. I would say right now it's a problem. And, I, and the problem is that Valanchunas, and it happened in the first game as well, when he's posting up Embiid and scoring on him, it's just, you know, JoJo was a mess offensively last night too, but that's, that's annoying. I You know, the Baines with those... Uh, those weird kicks on his three-pointers. I'm not sure if those will go in all the time. But I, I will say, among the uh, the categories you're about to uh, lay out here for us, Derek, I, I will say, even though this is a problem right now, I trust Embiid will figure this out over the year to a degree. Uh, I just trust his talent, trust his competitiveness, and, yeah, I, I do think, you know, at some point, and, hey, it might even be in a couple weeks when the Raptors come to Philly, he will uh, he will figure something out against these guys. So I think this is a problem in the sense that any time you can body someone up, it makes their life harder. So is Embiid's life more difficult when somebody can physically match him or hold their own ground and where the first move doesn't beat them? Of course it's harder when the first move doesn't beat them. That's, that's true for, I think, just about everything. But I think it's more that if somebody can stop his first move, and also they can do other stuff in front of him, then I think that makes Joel's life difficult, which we'll get to soon. But like you said, he's had a lot of success against Dwight Howard. He's a big physical dude. Not as tall as Embiid. You know, Embiid's probably got four inches on him. But he's a big, strong guy. He's had a lot of success success on Whiteside, on Drummond. Also big guys. Also pretty good one-on-one defenders. Certainly in Drummond's case, better one-on-one than team. So I don't think it's as simple as when Embiid can be matched physically, then he struggles. I think there's more to that. So going on to the second question. Good, I don't want to phrase this. Good, deep, diverse defensive teams and slowing down Ben Simmons. Big problem. I'm going to say it's a big problem. Um I thought one of the things that that hurt the Sixers last night was uh, some of the minutes. I think I think it was in the second quarter they played them together. Uh, TJ TJ and Ben together. I mean the Raptors with all of their their length, they just they just shrunk the floor to 
an insane degree. And it just you you look at that environment and you're like, how is Jimmy Butler supposed to run a pick and roll, and how is Embiid supposed to post up when those two guys are in the game together? Um, and with, with Ben in particular, when they're 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 not going to pay him any respect whatsoever. Um, and you also have to look at what they do to him on the ball. Like Kawhi is able to pluck the ball from Ben Simmons like almost nobody else is, and you know guys like Siakam match up with him really well in the post, and like. When you have guys like that, it's just like where where do you put Ben? Where do you how do you have him create offense? Like there's almost no way. Um, so I'm gonna say that's a big problem. Big problem. The uh, it, it's so I think what makes Simmons frustrating is that against 75 to 80 percent of the league, his strengths are just so overwhelming, and the other team will have some sort of flaw that his strengths can take advantage. Even if it's like a good defensive team like Memphis, they'll turn the ball over, take bad shots, and he'll just beat them in transition because he's so overwhelming. But these diverse defensive teams, as Derek said, who also can score, it's, man, it's it's just night and day. And Mike said it with Kawhi. It's, the Celtics was more of a, you know, last year in the playoffs when they shut him down, that felt like more of a system-based type of thing. They they have good defenders, and obviously they've they've been a very good defense. But Kawhi is just incredible, man. When he doesn't have to worry about Ben shooting those jumpers, it's kind of unfair with his anticipation and some of the steals he gets that I don't think anybody else in the NBA gets. He's I, he's an alien, and it's it's tough because. He's the type of guy who just exploits uh, exploits Ben's weakness. And I also agree with what Mike said. TJ was a big problem last night. And nope. Kyle Lowry, just uh, he was completely disregarding him anytime, whether it was Ben or Joe or or Jimmy driving the ball into the paint. But, yes, Ben uh, Ben against these best def- uh, these top defensive teams and specifically against Kawhi, it's a big problem. I mean, he has 18 turnovers in two games. That's it's a problem. Yeah, and it really is. You know, they started off, um, I think they started off the game with Pascal defending him, and then obviously Kawhi switched on him real quickly. They can throw three or four different defenders on him who have a chance of matching his size. Not that you're going to match his speed, but at least have a chance of slowing him down, of playing smart defense, playing the angles and are, are big as well. Like, they can really throw a diverse set of, of players at him. And when you take that along with a smart defensive team and a team that has no real weaknesses defensively, and the way that that makes Joel Embiid's problem, life much more difficult, you know, I don't think... I think part of the problem is that, going back to Embiid's game, is that Valanciunas can slow him down. That first bump doesn't dislodge him. I think you can say the same thing for Boston. But I think really where the difference comes in is they know how to take advantage of the Sixers' lack of spacing and make Joel's life much more difficult. So you combine, you know, a team that has a point-of-attack defender on Joel that's a real good defensive team as a whole and also a bad night from Joel and, you know, maybe being a little bit tired. And it just it, it turns into one of the worst games you've seen Joel play as a prof- professional. And when Embiid isn't at the top of his game, beating a team that's this good on both sides of the ball where you're not going to get those transition pushes, like you mentioned, it becomes tough. And obviously a lot of focus is going to be on how the Sixers have performed 
both in the playoffs last year against Boston, but also against Milwaukee, Toronto, and Boston so far this year. And it's not great. And I think there's that's kind of a two-pronged reason why. And it is it's not an easy solution. You know, I, there's been so much consternation about Ben Simmons' jump shot lately. And it's a little bit frustrating because you can't talk about anything else about his game without coming back to, but what about his jump shot? On the one hand, you know, it, it would be nice if we could, like, we all get it. He needs a jump shot. Uh, and I don't think we need to go too far. Uh, like, I I don't think there's any world where Ben Simmons walks when he's a free agent. Like, nobody's, nobody on this podcast is suggesting that. And if you think I'm sub-podcasting someone, yes, I am, and he knows who he is. So we don't want to go that far. He's still a valuable player, but does it have a real serious consequence? Yes. Are you upset and frustrated that there hasn't been any progress? You know, really, he was drafted in, what, June 2016. So we're talking about over two years where there's just not, there's, there's not, there's not in-game progress. There just isn't. And it's, it's, it's a long-term concern. It impacts the team. It is part of the reason why you need someone like Jimmy Butler or theoretically what they drafted Marco Fultz to be, to be playing alongside with him. But even so, they have so much to overcome that it is it, it, it does for sure cause issues. And there are a lot of space. I mean, the Sixers, point guards overall played or have made, that were available last night, have made two three-pointers on the season. Two. Two. And a real good, a well-coached defensive team like Toronto and Boston, they find ways to make you pay for that. And that was very clearly evident last night. Um, TJ, like you guys said, just as bad. Quite frankly, I think TJ, I, I would cut TJ's minutes right now. I would give some of those to, hell, give them to Landry Shannon. And, you know, he played a lot of point guard in college. I don't know if he can really do that in the NBA. But you also have Jimmy Butler to help you create a half-court offense. You're going to dump a lot of... A lot of the, the half-court offense into, um, into Joel Embiid in the post. You don't need a traditional point guard on this team, even when Ben Simmons is off the floor. I'd probably look to cut TJ's minutes back, use him as more of a change-of-pace guy, give some of them to Landry. It would be great if they had a, a more viable option that could shoot. They just don't have it. They just don't have it. Yeah, the classic, the classic conundrum with the Sixers. They have three point guards and none of them shoot. And that, amazing. And I think that brings up the third uh the third category here and if you cut TJ's minutes I mean what are you going like 7 or 8 deep? Yeah, that that I, mean, I think I think you still bring TJ in at times. Like I don't think you take him out of the rotation, but yeah, they have no depth for sure. For sure. And I we hit on it a little bit, but you know, the the thing that stood out to me as I was thinking through it was like the Sixers have an advantage over the Raptors, one through four, I think. I mean, the, the Raptors' best player is Kawhi, who is, is better than Embiid. But two through four, I mean, Butler's better than Lowry. Simmons, I think you would take over Siakam. I don't even know who the Raptors' fourth best player is, but J.J. Redick is probably better. But the difference five or four through, or whatever, five through nine is enormous. It's huge. Yep. Yeah, and I don't know how you bridge that gap without – mortgaging too much of the future. And, you know, against the Raptors, there were two big runs that really did the Sixers in. At the end of the, end of the first half, the, Ra- the Raptors went on that big run, and then to start that fourth quarter. And they went on, I think it was a 13 nothing run to start the fourth quarter, and really took control of the game 
with Lowry and Leonard both on the bench. And you're right, the top four, as much as we're going to talk about Simmons and the frustration with him and his shooting and how much he hurt them last night, which, by the way, I think Joel's bad game has kind of thrown that under. Like, I don't think that's getting quite the attention it deserved. But it's great that you have that top four, but they're so woefully lacking in terms of of depth. And when you play a team like the Raptors, who can go on that run, it's it's really, really obvious. Can we mention the one big positive from last night? Jimmy Butler looked awesome. They don't have to play in Toronto again? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's that's also true. Jimmy Butler looked so at home in that game. I mean, he he looked like he completely belonged in a, in a playoff-type game, which is... That's why you traded for him, and and that's cool. He uh, he was very frustrated. I saw on the ESPN broadcast, uh, I led that with my story today on The Athletic, he was pretty frustrated with the turnovers, and he was not being a, uh, he was not being a dick about it, but they had him mic'd up, and he was like, guys, we, we need to just get shots at the rim. Just just stop turning the ball over, and uh and he didn't, and what, what did he have, 37 points? I, he, he completely matched Leonard on the offensive end. Unfortunately, Kawhi plays that alien defense as well, which makes him you know, one of the best five players in the world. But it, it was good to see Butler you know, kind of in tough environment, good defensive uh, team. I mean, they threw every defender. He scored on Kawhi, he scored on Lowry, he scored on Siakam. In a variety of ways, he was very impressive. Yeah, and for sure. I, I've been I've been banging this drum a lot about how they need to uh, kind of make Jimmy more of a centerpiece in the offense, and and they definitely did that last night. And it seemed like it didn't even seem like a mid game adjustment since Embiid and Simmons were struggling. Like from from the jump, they were running Butler Reddick pick and rolls and getting Jimmy a lot of dribble handoffs, all that stuff. Like like they really I felt like made an adjustment last night to get him the ball more. Yep, and and J- and JJ looked looked pretty good offensively too. Defensively, you know, he could be attacked, but you know, it was good to see him. They were running, you know, the the, the old two man game with Embiid, and like you said, I thought they uh, they opened the playbook up for Butler a little bit and got some good looks. But yeah, he looked great. The uh, one little pet peeve that has nothing to do with the game. Can I stop hearing about what a great teammate he is based on? Twitter video clips and him buying shoes for or his teammates. Do, do you guys have a subscription to The Athletic? Do you follow Woj even? I, I mean, I'm not saying he's been a bad teammate here, but just because he uh, he wears a headband with Ben Simmons, that doesn't make him the greatest teammate in the world. I, he He literally just forced his way out of a team team that's playing pretty good right now, by the way. Uh, can, can I just not hear that he's a great teammate because he buys everybody Jordans? I, I don't know. That's That's been yeah, frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people want to buy in, and I think people want this pairing to turn out well. And I think we discussed this on the last podcast. Like, I think there's reasons to think this could be different than Minnesota, but I think we also have to be a little bit grounded and realize that you know, first of all, like I said before, I th- I think um, you know I don't think most people think Jimmy Butler is a bad guy. I think most people think that he can grate on people as time wears on. 
and just keeping keep an even keel. Like it's good that the first couple of weeks have gone well, first three weeks or or, or whatever it's been. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's zero threat down the line either. And especially as we get closer to, you know, the Sixers having to give him that four that four or five year contract, whether they end up giving him, whether or not maybe some of that that last fifth year can be partially guaranteed or, or however it ends up coming about. But especially as we get closer to that new contract. That is going to be have, have to be something that we're going to have to be realistic about, and uh, it's it's good that it has gotten off to a good start, and we'll see where it goes from there. Totally agree. It's gotten All off right. to a good start. I've enjoyed uh, covering him, and it's it seems like he's doing well with his teammates. Uh, enough with the sweeping generalizations, though, based on nothing. Oh, there's there's all kinds of people that are like, oh, you're an idiot for everything. This is a problem, and it's like, all right, calm down, calm down. All right, problem not a problem. Turnovers. <laughs> And by that, I don't mean last night's turnovers. Like, clearly, last night turnovers were a huge problem. I mean, going forward with this team. I'd like to see them get better with Butler. I, they're still, you know, they're better than dead last like they've always been. And, you know, a lot of those teams were completely hopeless. But I, I'm going to say, yeah, it, maybe not as big of a problem as as Simmons against these defenses. Uh, although they're they're kind of linked because... You take away the shot, then the passing lanes get shrunk, and there's people guarding Embiid. Uh, I, I mean, against Toronto, those have been two massively massive high turnover games. So you would hope, you know, as Mike was saying, if they make Butler more of a centerpiece, that seems like easier offense, and and they can kind of creep up towards league average. But I would say, yeah, until they start to make some, and I'm not, I don't think with Simmons and Embiid it's ever going to be a team that takes care of the ball at a really high rate. That's not always the most important thing to a lot of years. Those teams are like the Doug Collins teams who where they're bad offenses. They don't get great shots, but yeah, a, a little bit of a problem until they, uh, until they take care of the ball against these good teams. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think that, like you said, it's just going to always be a factor with this team. When, when Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are, are, you know, two of the guys that are creating the most offense on your team, they're just naturally turnover prone. I mean, Simmons is always going to just rampage and transition and try and fit the ball through tight windows and eventually cough it up. And Embiid just likes to throw the ball to the other team too much. <laughs> um, there were a couple. There were a couple passes Embiid threw last night, like when he was in the two man game with Redick, where he just threw it like four or five feet left of where he was trying to throw it, and I and and. It just it just wasn't his night, but he does have those moments where uh, where just he just has some head scratching turnovers, and and they're just something you kind of have to live with with him. Yeah, and I will say, heading into last night's game, they were 16th in the league after the Jimmy Butler trade, so they had made pretty significant progress. They didn't play the toughest schedule in the world. He played. Two really good defensive teams in Utah and was Utah Utah was after the trade, right? Yeah. But Utah yeah. and Memphis were in there, so they played two good team defensive teams, but a whole lot of not good defensive teams. So this was the test. They didn't you know, they failed that test. But I think the fact that they were trending in the right direction post Butler acquisition means I'm willing to give this a little bit more time to see whether it really it continues to move in the right direction. You know, like you guys said, they're never going to be among the best in the league at taking care of the basketball. 
um, not with the way that the roster is assembled, not with how Brett Brown wants to run. And the question isn't ever really, are you committing the fewest turnovers in the league? The question is, are you maximizing your points per possession? And I don't think that always necessarily directly correlates. I mean, we've always said they were, you know, it's the Golden State Warriors almost always are not leading the league in turnovers because that's that's a sixer spot on the totem pole, but they're always second or third most turnovers in the league. And I think the Sixers right now have the 12th ranked offense. And before that game, I think we're right around 10th. And that is always going to be much more what you focus on. And I think last night was just a, first of all, a, a hell of a defensive team, a bad matchup and a bad execution. You know, like I said, we'll give it more time. See if, if, if that trend that was established before the Toronto game continues or whether they revert to their turnover-prone ways. My favorite pass of the night was Wilson Chandler chucking the ball off the backboard. <laughs> By the way. He had, he had a couple of real bad blown defensive assignments, too. He was, yes. he was sneaky bad last night. Yeah, that that has gone very overlooked. He was terrible. I mean, it just he, he just like looked like his head was in the clouds the entire game. Yeah. All right, so last problem, not a problem. Defensive rebounding. I think the Raptors had 17 offensive rebounds. And again, this is not, was it a problem against the Raptors? Because that is quite obvious. I mean, the Raptors shot 43%, 27.6 from three. You should win that game. Turnovers, as you know, as Brett likes to harp on extra possessions, I think Toronto had, what, 12 more shots than the Sixers. So not great. But defensive rebounding going forward throughout the season, is that a problem? No. I don't think so. And I, and I think that, uh, along with the lack of free throws, was tied to Embiid's energy level. He just he got beat by, like, I, I remember a play where Greg Monroe beat him, just snuck in and, and kind of out-leveraged him and got the rebound. But they're, I, I think they're still in the top ten in terms of defensive rebounding. And, yeah. It, I think they're fourth. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, they're eighth on cleaning the glass right now. So, I mean, it, it probably took a hit last night when they, uh, you know, you know, when they got bludgeoned. But yeah, that's it, it's part of the thing, along with the free throws that that, that hurt them. I, I don't think it's a huge problem. It's you know, it's it's frustrating when uh, when a team has 15 more shots, like uh, like Brett said last night. But I don't know. I, I just think if you keep Embiid fresh and and he returns to his normal self, as I think we all assume he will. Uh, I think that that'll be a strength of theirs for most of the season. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, they have four-plus rebounders in the starting lineup with Embiid, Butler, Simmons, and Chandler. So, But they, they have had a couple nights where they just look completely dead on the glass, and, and other teams take advantage of that. But I'm just inclined to think that with so many good rebounders in the starting lineup, they'll figure it out. Yeah, so heading into the game against the Raptors, they were at a 73.9% defensive rebounding rate. The third best team in the league, Denver, was at a 75.3. So they're, they're, I mean, they're right there with the best in the league. Does one bad game change that? No. And I saw a lot of comments like, you know, they have Embiid and Simmons, I don't understand how rebounding was, Rebounding's a problem, and by and large, it isn't. And I don't think the loss of Sharch and Covington is going to make that. You know, I think there is something to 
those were two pretty good defensive rebounders, especially Covington for his position is a pretty good defensive rebounder. But they're still, by and large, very competitive in that aspect of the game. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a long-term problem. Like you guys said, I think Embiid's energy level wasn't there, and I think that plays a factor into it. I also, I also thought Simmons wasn't necessarily there all the way on the defensive side of the court against the Raptors. You know, I saw a lot of standing upright LSU Ben Simmons, and I don't think he he was quite as crisp as maybe we have come to expect from him. Yeah, I agree with that. There were a couple uh, possessions. I think him him and Chandler both, like, when they were switched on to Lowry, they would just run, the Raptors would run pick and roll, and Lowry, or excuse me, uh, Simmons and Chandler had a couple of uh, couple of instances where they just basically swatted at Lowry and he hit a pull-up. Like, there was yep. just no effort from them. Toronto missed, I don't have the numbers in front of me, they missed a decent amount of open shots in that game which I think you let off with Derek. But, yeah, they, they the, the Sixers got their butts whipped last night, which, I don't know. I, I, think, I think I said on the last podcast I expected it, but uh, it is always tougher to, uh, to stomach when you're watching it. Yeah, for sure. All right, we will wrap that up with another one final problem, not a problem, and then a little bit about Markel Fultz. But hold on right there, guys, because – we have to tell you about Warming Store. This episode is brought to you by Action Heat, the Philadelphia-based manufacturer of some of the world's best battery-heated clothing. Stay warm this summer with heat on demand and at the touch of a button. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels similar to a heated car seat. They can reach temperatures of up to 135 degrees Fahrenheit and are powered by rechargeable 5-volt lithium-ion batteries that last up to 12 hours on each charge. Action Heat batteries can also be used to recharge your phone or any other gadget while you're wearing them. These gifts are perfect for any friend or family on your holiday gift list. For anyone who works outdoors, for skiers, snowboarders, or anybody that loves the outdoors but hates being cold. Action Heat clothing provides toasty warmth and comfort for your whole body, starting at just $39.99. Heated products include heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and even undergarments like heated base layer shirts and long johns, and it's available in men's and women's sizes with great new styles and models just released for this winter season. Make winter activities more enjoyable with a blast of warmth. Action Heat is a perfect solution to keep you toasty and warm even in the most frigid winter weather. With snow shoveling season coming up, I recently picked up a pair of Action Heated gloves powered by AA batteries with an easy on-off button to keep your hands nice and toasty while dealing with the dreaded upcoming snow. Join in on the fun. We've got a special offer for our listeners to save up 20% off your entire order. Just go to actionheat.com slash Sixers to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com slash Sixers, or use the coupon code Sixers at checkout to save 20%. All right, so wrapping up all of the problem, not a problem. These Sixers have obviously had problems with the Eastern Conference, with the top of the Eastern Conference. You know, you had a... What was it? I had the schedule here a second ago. I now lost it. Hold on, this is going to be real great pod. <laughs> Perfect. Who, the teams they've played? No, but I had like the actual point totals of, of their love. Anyway, they got blown out at Boston to open up the season. They got blown out twice now in Toronto. They got blown out at Milwaukee. All the games on the road... Only one of them now with Jimmy Butler. Is that a problem as we look towards the end of the season and the playoffs? 
I think it's a problem, but because of the factors you said, all of those games have been on the road. It hasn't mattered whether the Sixers have played good or bad teams. They've been so much better at home this year. And, yeah, like you said, they just got Butler. We'll see what they do in terms of uh, filling out that 15th roster spot, whether they try and bolster the bench that we've talked about for about 20 minutes here, and, you know, whether that's from a trade or, or the buyout market. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a problem. It's it's concerning to me that the, uh, none of those games have been close. Last night was probably the closest game, and like we said, the Sixers got their butt w- butts whipped worse than the uh, the final score will tell you. But yeah, like let's watch them play the Raptors in a couple weeks at home with Butler. I, I would imagine they'll play better in that game. But yeah, I, I'm concerned that it, I mean it's it's four times now that they've just gotten their ass kicked by uh, by a good team. And until they uh, they bridge the gap and and start playing competitive basketball against some of those teams, it's yeah, it's concerning. I would say I would say it's a concern, but probably less so than most people because I just think I think this team is is incomplete. I think they're like a Damari Carroll and a Dwayne Dedman away from making sense, and uh, I think that they'll get guys like that. And until then, like they're just they're at such a deficit with their from a depth perspective that it just it's hard to even judge this team fairly against against those those other contending teams. So. Um, and also, you know, the fact that all of them were on the road, um, the fact that they only one of them has been with Butler, that obviously changes things. But I just think you have to look at it from the perspective of this is a team that, that is not complete and that is clearly lacking a dynamic that they sorely need and that will will put them on that tier when they get it. Yeah, I think it is a problem. You know, I think even after the trade right now, Certainly if Boston gets back to where they were, but they might be the most um, uncertain team of the four that we're talking about, of the big four in the Eastern Conference. But Toronto and Milwaukee are just right now playing on a different level. And Toronto certainly, I expect, barring a major trade, you know, I, I think they will probably look at them if the Sixers have a playoff series against them come May. You know, I think we'll say Toronto's the, the favorite. You know, I think they're going to continue this level of play throughout the season. So is it a problem? Yeah, you know, I think it's a problem. I think what these teams can do to Simmons is a problem. I think the way they're able to defend and bead one-on-one and how smart they are in sending double teams his way and making his life difficult and making it so that each time down the trip looks different for him is a problem. And I think the depth that these teams have, specifically Toronto but, but Boston as well, and the lack of depth the Sixers have, like I said, that 13-0 run to start the fourth quarter when they have Lowry and Leonard off the floor, you can't let that happen. But the Sixers don't really have the depth to contend with these teams. So I think that is a problem. And like you guys have said, I think the Sixers 1 through 4 have a better collection of talent than any of them. So it's getting this to where all the pieces fit. It's getting it to where the depth can keep you competitive. And is that going to happen in one year? You know, the Sixers are now at the spot where you the expectation is to contend, and it is there's very there's just very little little margin for error. So we will see what they have in store. It, it's you know we're not used to teams being active 
at the trade deadline. Like usually when there's activity at the trade deadline with this franchise, it's selling off pieces. It's selling off Okafor or the expectation that he would be sold off. It's selling off Michael Carter-Williams. It's taking back contracts to get draft picks. It's not for win-now moves. And even last year, they were quiet at the deadline, except for the you know the buyout market. But in terms of trades, they were quiet. And I think this is the first time we'll really be sitting here in February going, all right, we've got to write these articles on who's out there and who they should be targeting because I think they're going to be very active. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. It would be nice if they added more of a two-way piece than uh, Marco Bellinelli this time, too. Uh, who San Antonio yes, Spurs right now are 29th in defense. Yes. Just pointing that out. Yeah, and he's playing like shit, too. Isn't he shooting like under 30% from three? Yeah. And, yeah, and, something like that. And they are bad. Yes, they do uh, miss. Okay, I'll, I will say this. I will concede this. They do miss Ursa. Oh, no, he's up to 32.1%. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to disrespect Marco Bellinelli. 32% three-point shooter Marco Bellinelli. Oh, yeah. Be careful. No, he might, he might, getting an, getting another he might re-block you on Twitter. <laughs> no, he blocked me a long time ago. He blocked me a long time ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying he would unblock you and then block you again. Oh, okay. Yeah. That guy, his um, Twitter activity was amazing, though. He blocked everybody. Even if it was like a backhanded compliment, he would block you. And then he would post memes of him photoshopped on a Rocky or something like that. It was, <laughs> right. I'd love to know if there was somebody running that Twitter because he found everything that any of us ever said about him. It was it was impressive. It's not like Amir Johnson who will like search like once every other month. Like he was pretty consistent. He was pretty consistent. Really nice guy in the locker room too, which makes me think there was somebody running that account. Anyway, nobody cares about that. So Markel Fultz. Uh, I've, out indefinitely, yeah, we we have to talk about it. I'm sorry. Um, out indefinitely, they came out with the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome, which I'll include a link to a pretty good. There's a, a Temple doctor who recently talked about this and was posted on Reddit, on Sixers subreddit, which I think explains this pretty well. So we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of what that means. You know, I think if you go back and you reread the article that we wrote on The Athletic with Jared Weiss, Sam Amick, David Aldridge, Sham Sharani, and myself, the trade aspect of it, that one line that we included kind of became the overriding factor of it. But really what we were researching was his struggles shooting the ball and the symptoms that we described in there. And I think if you go and you look at some of the symptoms of it, the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome was not there, but the symptoms exhibited were. And the reason I say that is because I think a lot of people have taken this as, well, they came up with something because he got benched for TJ McConnell. And we had been researching those symptoms long before he, well, I'm, to be honest, we had been researching those symptoms before the Jimmy Butler trade certainly long before he was benched for T.J. McConnell. So I don't think it's fair to say that he got benched and thus they went out searching for a diagnosis. And I think that's I think that's key. I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt there. And what I will say is I think that his representation has not done him any favors. Like, to respond to his benching and to take him out at that point, to not work with the team as they so clearly have not worked with him, to basically dictate to the team what they were going to do, I don't think it did Markel any 
favors in the court of public opinion. And for, you know, I think, so I think if you go and you look at, at really research thoracic outlet syndrome, I do think there's some interesting symptoms which line up with a lot of what we've seen. And there's a lot of natural questions. Why did it take so long to diagnose? And again, if you go read it, you know, I think there's there's a lot of history of this being undiagnosed or diagnosed incorrectly, but it's it's a fair question. You know, why is he able to do certain activities and not others? And again, I think I think this is where watching that video will help. But it, it would be great if they can find something that is contributing to where Markel Fultz is and where his jumper is. And I've always said, I think if you look at this as a, is it a physical problem or is it a confidence problem? I think you're looking at it from the wrong viewpoint. I think there's no question that both factor into this and we can play, play chicken or egg. Like, does he have a confidence problem because of the physical problem? Who knows? Pro- probably only Markel Fultz knows that. And he, even he might not know that. But I think if they can find, you know, if, Physical is 20% of what's going on, and they can find a solution for that. Maybe that will then help him get his confidence back. Right now, it would be great if this is a correct diagnosis, and the physical therapy they are doing helps him. And that, that's what I hope. That's what I hope. Yeah. Um, I, I think, like, anyone who is skeptical of this diagnosis, that's totally understandable. Um, the, the timeline of it all is is certainly uh, subject to question, but I will say that if you research uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, a lot of the things that that come with that, whether it's being hard to diagnose or the exact symptoms that that Markel has described for for over a year now, or you know just and really anything about it, a lot of them do line up with this storyline. Um, and I, like you said, I'm not even sure what exactly it is. I'm not sure which side to to believe right now. Um, but I will say that, that this diagnosis does certainly have some, some credibility and it matches up with, um, with other athletes like pitchers in baseball. If you, if you haven't read that article that Derek shared, uh, about the Padres pitchers, it's on, on the athletic, but Derek tweeted out a couple days ago, you should read it. Um, a lot of those symptoms sound very similar to what Markel has been going through. Um, so it, Anyone who is just completely dismissing this diagnosis, I think you're wrong to do that. I think that there is a strong possibility that it that this is what it was. The one symptom, and just just trying to read as much as I can about uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, that matches with Derek's reporting and, and Jared Weiss and that that report from a few weeks ago is uh, is the uh the trouble with gripping a ball and uh the yep. sensations that uh Fultz is feeling in in his right thumb and, and that's something that Derek and and Jared reported a few weeks ago well that's that's basically in every article that you read about this thing so i i don't yeah and i've had some people like well where's the wrist injury you talked about and it does not mean that there's an injury to his wrist, but if you go read about thoracic outlet syndrome, that is a very common, like like you said, that's in pretty much every write-up that there is sensation issues or numbness in arms and 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 wrists and hands on that same side. 
I think we're so used to a diagnosis being like, oh, here's an x-ray. That bone is clearly broken. Let's fix that and let's move on. Or here's a muscle that is torn. And when you start getting into, and there's a couple different causes of thoracic outlet syndrome, whether it's venous or in terms of nerves. But when you start getting into this kind of stuff, it's not as clear of a diagnosis and it gets misdiagnosed a lot. And it gets, um, you know, a lot of times where it's not like a throbbing pain from what I understand. Like it's just something doesn't feel right. And I could see a lot of times where maybe Markel, maybe it's feeling better. Maybe his confidence is back. And, and maybe he's just, hey, like this is, maybe I'm not injured. Maybe it's just in my head when it could really still be there. And I think if you read a lot of these articles, the one I retreated out, um, Matt Harvey, uh, Ben Uzo, which is uh, the only other known basketball player to really go through this. I think there's a lot of times a lot of doubt and uncertainty, both in your ability to use that arm the way that you've used it your entire life, and also whether or not you really have any real damage that can be detected and that can be fixed. It is a it is a growing field for sure. Yep, and it, obviously that's up near your shoulder it, it is kind of where the uh, the source of the uh, of the problem is. But yeah, it, when, when you read everything, they say that that can affect all the way down to your hand. And you know, it, this has just been such a crazy crazy story that I, I don't want to say that you know we know what uh what's going on with Markel. I don't think anybody knows except uh except Markel. Hmm. The the one thing that I thought was notable though, and this has little to do with the injury itself, more th- more to do with the handling of it. One, there seems like there's some healthy skepticism within the Sixers of, you know. Oh, well, I I was going to get to the 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 tweet. So Okay, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I, just the just the press release, just how, uh, you know, they didn't name any of the doctors and they made it, you know, specific. They made it clear that it was Raymond Brothers who was the one who was driving this whole thing. And they brought the, uh, you know, they they brought this recommendation back to the Sixers. And then I, the other thing, too, is that for Raymond Brothers to tell Woj, this is it. Yep. We got it. Like, I feel great about this. When you look back at that guy's history in terms of <laughs> revealing what's going on with Markel, uh, I think there is – Not great. Yeah, yep. it's, I, I wouldn't take his word as, uh, as gospel by any means. And that – that's interesting to me. I, you know, we will, uh, we'll, we will see. You know, uh, I don't really have anything. So I, I don't even, have anything else on that. I just thought the the handling of it is is also interesting as well. Even beyond Raymond Brothers' track record, you know, I think there is. If you go back and so here, here's a couple of of Adrian Wojnarowski tweets uh, at Wojspn. A quote from Raymond Brothers: People were saying it was a mental problem and it is not. There's no way you're the number one pick in the world, and all of a sudden, you aren't able to consistently raise your arms to shoot. Something is, is physically wrong. Now we have the answer to that problem. Next tweet. Fultz's attorney and agent, Raymond Brothers, has strong confidence that this diagnosis and rehab will address Fultz's shooting issues. Sixers officials are certainly hoping his optimism is warranted. So, first of all, Sixers officials are hoping his optimism is warranted. That's a long, a far cry from saying the Sixers are optimistic. 
And the way that was phrased has to be intentional, and it was very interestingly phrased. But even moving off of that, let's say thoracic atlas syndrome is not only a factor, but is the is a, a big factor in why Fultz has struggled to shoot for a year and a half now. And like I said, I don't think there's any there's I don't think there's ever going to be one explanation for this. Like change shot, thoracic outlet, physical issues, confidence issues. My answer is yes. I think there's probably some degree that all of those are factoring into this. And we can argue, and I'm sure we will argue, uh, because it's very key on his recovery, exactly how much like is the physical issue 10%? Did the physical issue cause the confidence issues? Are there just underlying confidence issues? Did the shooting cause the confidence issues? Like there's, we don't, putting this puzzle together and figuring out what percentage of blame or responsibility each get is still very fluid. But I think there's some degree for all of those three. But even if the thoracic outlet syndrome is the primary driver of all of that, you know, one of the common themes of people who have gone through this is that they've spent so long changing, usually their throwing motion, because this is mostly a, a baseball injury, but they've actually spent so much time compensating for it that they now don't know how to throw a baseball a normal way. When their shoulder gets back healthy, they have to relearn how to throw a baseball. And then there's also, you know, just, I mean, this is a kid who hasn't shot a basketball competently in a year and a half, expecting that this is now going to, you're going to do some physical therapy and all of those confidence struggles are now going to go away because he did some physical therapy and he'll be back in three to six weeks. It just seems wildly optimistic. It seems like the Sixers, that that timeline is unrealistic. It seems like Raymond Brothers is setting Fultz up where if he does struggle because he has his form has been constantly changing for a year and a half, and of course he's going to come back and struggle. Now he's he doesn't have the buffer that he should have because his agent came out with this bluster that just does nobody any good. I don't know why. Why would you pick this route? Why would you put that kind of pressure on him? I don't. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah, I totally agree. And and by the way, if you look at how it's been handled with uh, with with baseball players. I think pretty much all of them have gotten surgery, and it's a very invasive surgery. You have a rib removed, um, yeah. and and so I was surprised to see three to six weeks of physical therapy will solve it. Well, and I think, uh, I think physical therapy, and this will be in the uh, the Temple um, lecture that I I post in here. I think physical therapy is generally the first method of treatment, and if that doesn't work, then they go on to surgery or surgical options. Sure. And, you know, I don't, I, I know nothing about severity between different kinds of thoracic outlet syndrome. Like it, this is far away and I've learned way more about foot bones than I should know, but this is far outside of my wheelhouse. But I think throwing a baseball is about the most unnatural thing you can ever do with your shoulder. So maybe this is just so much less stress that you don't need to jump to that quickly. Or maybe Fultz is just isn't that severe. Like I've, I have no idea what would necessitate uh, surgery. And, and maybe this is where baseball really being our only point of comparison is probably failing us a little bit because it could be pretty significantly different. Yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense. But I think that that kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier, that still why in the heck would Raymond Brothers come out and say, this is it, we got it three to six weeks of physical therapy because, you know, it just would have made more sense to say, well, this is what it is and we're going to try physical therapy 
could require surgery, but we hope that this resolves it. Like it, it, it just, again, like you just put, it's just a bad chess move and you just put Markel in a difficult situation. If three to six weeks from now, he's hardly improved. And then, you know, it, there's going to be even more skepticism towards it. When in reality, like it, it could be very reasonable that he goes through physical therapy and that he doesn't get a lot better and he probably needs to pursue other, other treatments but because of you know this 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 confidence from Raymond Brothers, he's not going to have that that buffer from from the criticism there. Well, I think I I do think not that I want to defend Raymond Brothers, but I do think the you know the Sixers press release set out indefinitely. But I think it was from the Sixers where the three to six weeks came from. I, I'd have to check the Shams and Woj tweets and reports, but I think the three to six timeline may have come from the Sixers. I don't I don't know for a hundred percent fact though. Three to six just I think, seems, I think that is right actually. Three to six just seems wildly optimistic to me. Yeah. I, I mean guys, this could be something that takes years. And maybe it gets fixed eventually, but God, I you know, just just reading about this and you know, I, I don't know. It's how many how many specialists did he see? Ten? Yeah. It just, I mean, this. It would have been great to get some more information on that too. And look, I get, especially since brothers and Fultz went there directly, that might be difficult for the team to give out. Like this might be a situation where they can't reveal as much as they normally would. But how many diagnosed thoracic outlet syndrome? How many brought it up as a possibility? Like, and again, we don't necessarily have a right to that information. But it would be great to know how strong of a consensus, or at least how strong of a theory this is. But we'll see. And like I said, I, I think there's probably a pretty big psychological and confidence aspect to this. And how long will it take for Markel to feel right? And how long will it take for him to be... And oh, by the way, he's still got to make kind of like an adjustment shooting jump shots in NBA games too, because he really doesn't do all that much of it. And he gets NBA speed and like all that stuff you talk about for a rookie, he's got to make that adjustment too. So it's um, three to six weeks just seems even best case scenario, even if this is the driving factor to what's causing his struggles seems, seems almost reckless in its quickness, but we'll see. We will see. All right. I think that's probably about all I got there. I don't think we need to, um, quite honestly, I didn't expect to talk for 20 minutes about faults, but it is, it's an interesting topic. Um, and like I said, I just I, I hope it's right. But thanks for jumping on, and we will talk to you guys again soon. See you, man. In three to six weeks. <laughs>